Well, why don't you guys turn to Isaiah 11. Our message today is going to be cisterns. Uh, not like brethren and sisterin, but like a cistern that holds water. There. Or at least is supposed to hold water. There. Uh, today is September 18, 2011, a Sunday morning. On the Hebrew calendar, we are in the month of Ul, E-L-U-L. This is important because in the feast schedule of Israel, we are about to enter into the seventh month. We are ten days away from the seventh month in Israel's calendar. The seventh month is when amazing things happen. I'll tell you more about that later. But this is a time for all of national Israel. It is a time of introspection, a time of reflecting on their lives. In other words, when you know a big holy day is coming up, you want to get right before that day. And that's what's happening in Israel right now. Did you turn to Isaiah 11? Yeah. I want to show you the goal. Uh, the goal that all of the people of God were looking forward to, somewhere around uh, 740 years before Jesus lived, 740 B.C., uh, the Hebrew prophet Isaiah began to, with just stunning clarity, speak about what the world would look like in the age of the Messiah. So start with me in the first verse of the 11th chapter. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. This is an awkward statement from the very beginning. Somebody would come out of the line of Jesse, and of course this is 300 years after David has arisen on the scene, 300 years after the Davidic kingdom. But having said that, the thought that the world could change because a man could be anointed of God. That's an amazing thing. Especially when you consider that nobody in David's family would have picked David. And yet the Lord did. So the world could change through one man who was anointed of God, but nobody else would have picked him. Are you beginning to see a picture there? Amen. This is like the first century Jewish carpenter. It's okay if you speak to me in church. I never intended, if we wanted to go somewhere and be quiet, I'd stand up here and say, my daddy beat your daddy in domino. I talk to you in languages you don't understand and wear funny clothes. This was never our goal. This is like a large family meeting. Jesus is our eldest brother. God is our father. I am one of you that was anointed with a patch to bring you the word this morning. So if I speak to you, what do you do in family meetings? Do you speak back? Speak back, yes. Speak back. That's all we're asking for. If you don't know what to do, look at the person on your left or right and, and see if they'll give you a hint, okay? Uh, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of the knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. What an amazing thing that through one man that nobody else would pick, but anointed of God, and the characteristics of his life would be determined by he was reverentially fearful of the Lord. He wanted to make sure that he only said what the Father told him to say. He only did what the Father told him to do. A man that is careful to do this is bound to make an impact. What does that tell you about the unproductive lives that we often see all around us and may occasionally see when we look in the mirror? It all hinges, it all starts and stops with are we reverence, reverentially fearing the Lord? Lord, 
have you directed the footsteps of my life today? Or have I simply determined the path and asked you to bless it? This is a subtle difference. It came to me in a prophecy today during the service, and I began to share it with you. It's not what I plan to preach on. It's a subtle difference, but it is a large difference in its application. Most of the time, we as Christians, we as believers, have already determined the things that the Lord will and won't bless. We've laid them out there, we've determined our path, and we simply ask God to put His stamp of approval on it. Right down to bringing people to an altar saying, repeat after me and now you're saved. What if the Lord wanted them to work through that for a few months? What if he's grinding away something in there that is idolatry that they could never serve the Lord with? We've given very... In fact, let's just be honest. Could you show up to most services, most places, and if the Holy Spirit never entered the room, you would not even notice? The click track keeps going right on time. The preacher starts and finishes right when he's supposed to, complete with a joke and something else that makes you feel good about yourself. And we might never even notice those things. If we want to impact the Lord, it starts with looking in the mirror and saying, Lord, what do you want from me right now? Not at some point future in life, today. Everybody has a calling? Raise your hand if you have a calling in this church. Amen. Either most of you have arms. <laughs> yeah. If we have a calling, it starts today, not at some point in the future. And today, what the Lord might want of you is to go to Walmart and be kind to the cashier. I'm not sure what he wants of you. He might want you to cut your neighbor's grass. But your calling starts now. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Okay, let's pick back up with the word. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. It's the needy that he issues decisions for. It are those who are poor that he issues decisions for. It is never those who already have all they need. So to be a recipient of the gospel, to be a recipient of the messianic age, number one, self-sufficiency is an enemy. And yet we spend our entire lives yearning for this, striving for it. We're proud when we can say things like, I never had to ask anybody for anything. <laughs> really? That's a good thing? You've been a God to yourself your entire life. Wrap yourself up. Why not just carve a little wooden idol of you and put it on your dash? You can even make it have a bubble hit. You know? <laughs> well, when you stop, it tells you how great you are. I know we all are raised in this culture. We are the American can-do attitude. I, I get it. But I'm not sure that it's godly. I believe that the king of the universe is moving his people to a place of sacrifice, a place of vulnerability, so that it can be clearly seen to any observer that only he is able to meet your needs, that only he is your provider. And as long as your arm is in it, not that you don't work hard, but as long as you are your own provider, where is there room for the Lord in your life? Amen. How many of you would feel cheated if you were Elijah? Who would like to be Elijah in here? Of course, you want to call fire from the skies, don't you? You want to blind armies? You, you'd like to be able to pray and know that the heavens shut up at your word? You'd be able to face down kings? 
But these men were formed in a furnace of affliction. And the way that they were formed is God said, Hey, look, um, I want you to go see a widow. And then you go see the widow and he says, Now, she's going to be starving and going home to make food just to die. But what I want you to do is ask her for some food. Isn't that the last person on earth you'd like to ask for food? How humbling. But he did. And in her responding to his request, God fed both of them for years. And she had a bunch of other needs met in her life, like a son that got raised from the dead. And then when that was done, he said, look, I want you to go to a place in there I will feed you. Didn't even tell him where. He called it there. That's what's behind when we turn to books in this church and everybody says there. We're in the place God has sent us. That's, that's the point. When he gets there, what happens? Ravens fly in food for him. An unclean bird brings the prophet food. How excited would you be if you were a Jew? Is there any food you consider yucky? Name one. Mushroom. I get a witness. I get a witness. I'm kidding. But for Allison, this would be a little bit like God flew in food on mushroom-shaped saucers. Have a raven bring in food. But God fed him that way, didn't he? And what happened after he got there at the Kiriath Ravine Brook? It dried up. See, our God brings us into a place of provision so that He can show us He's God and we're not, and then He lets it dry up to show us that place was not your provision. I am your provision. This is the kind of thing that teaches people to be led by the Spirit of God. The goal in Isaiah 11 was the target that we're all aiming for. Righteousness will be His belt, and faithfulness the sash around His waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion will be, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain before we move on to that next verse. The Messiah would affect every aspect of culture, period. He would affect the way that justice was given, the way the poor would be treated, the way oppressed would be treated. He would affect kings and peasants. He would affect the ants, the antelopes, and the elephants. In every way, he would restructure the earth and it would be based on something. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. The reason that we come and get baptized in His Word regularly, the reason that we're supposed to wash ourselves with it daily, and husbands, you're given the task of washing your wife with the Word daily, is because this knowledge of the Lord washing over you is supposed to restructure every facet of your life. There is no area of your life that you should are given a pass on and you can say, Lord, you can restructure the justice part, the poor part, the oppressed part. I'll even give you the one that deals with the, the ant or the antelope. But the elephant's mine. Because there would be an elephant in the room with you and the Lord. And he's not going to leave that alone. He's not going to leave it alone because he either owns all of you or he owns none of you. 
let's be honest, if you go out to start your car and it's the one thing that the car won't do, I mean the horn works, the blinkers work, radio comes on, if it won't do what you bought it to do, you'd get another car or fix it, tear something out of it and put something new in it. He redeemed you for a purpose. Ephesians 2 teaches us that he redeemed us in order that we might do the good work he prepared in advance for us to do. It's 2, 9, and 10 that says that. In 1993, he came for me in a major way. I was an angry young man, broken in all of my life and all of my ways. People didn't know it, but I had had fleeting thoughts of suicide. On the outside, everything looked just fine, except for quite a few suspensions. Popular, had most of the things that I wanted, and I was not happy. And this verse was nagging at me. It was Matthew 7, 21. It said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And I did with that verse just what everybody else does, what you're tempted to do. I said, that's right. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. The problem is I was choking on the last part of the verse. Only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. I knew that although I claimed to know him and was known by him, although I could quote you the Roman road to salvation while I was very, very lost, I could not claim to be doing the will of God. So I raised my arms in anger in my own home. And I began to pray. Not a biblical prayer, not a godly prayer, not even a good prayer. Just the cry of a lost man. I wasn't even asking for help. I was actually kind of accusing God. And he knocked me down with his voice. And he changed my life. He's restructured every facet of it. 18 years later, I don't look anything like that man. This is what Christianity looks like, friends. His word enters into your life when you're in the desert. And it gives you life. It's like a spring. All of Israel was looking forward to a day when the Messiah would restructure every facet of life. In Leviticus 23, you don't have to turn there. Keep your finger in Isaiah because I'm going to read you some more of Isaiah. The first and second verse say this. Yahweh said to Moshe, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts. The appointed feast of the Lord which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. Now we hear that in English and we go, Yeah, yeah, there's some holidays, some holy days, some religious things, and, and maybe we're going to get together. Praise God, that's good. What's next? As one brother told me recently, Dude, I had to skip that whole book of Leviticus. It's just boring, you know? I said, Did you read it? Well, you, you know, I mean, it's full of, I mean, it numbers. I just had to move on past because it's full of just, I said, no, I don't know what. Awkward silence. Well, it's full of numbers and stuff. I said, no, actually, that's a misnomer. That's the name on the book, but that's not what the book is about. Not at all. Call me back the next day, praise God, repent. Hey, I started to read it. It's really pretty good. Yeah, it's amazing. There's a way that seems right to us, and in the end, it's destruction. When you read this phrase in Hebrew, he says that I've got some very special parties for you. I mean, the kind of thing that the whole world should stop and take note of. A party for the centuries. And the part where he says sacred assemblies at the end, sacred assembly in Hebrew is a word called mikra. 
And mikra means to rehearse or to recite. When they got together, they didn't just assemble. They were rehearsing for something. It was like reciting something so that they would get it right. Seven times a year, God told Israel to get together to rehearse something. Because it was coming. The reality would be coming. And he wanted the whole world to see the movie every year. Yeah, how many of you got a favorite movie in here? The rest of you so holy you don't watch TV? <laughs> You're already asleep? What's the deal? Yeah? Come on. Do you have a favorite movie? Say, yes, Pastor, I have a favorite yes, movie. Yes, now, see, I won't cry and run away and act like you don't, uh, don't want to talk to me today, and neither one of us will be embarrassed. When your favorite movie comes on, like just, for instance, in my house, Chevy Chase's Christmas Vacation. Hopefully we can find the edited version because it, it, can, it can be a bad movie. I know that's scary to all of you. There are certain parts of that movie that when they come on, even my kids can quote it. Right? They know when Uncle Eddie goes to the grocery store and says, put something on the list for yourself, something real nice, Clark. <laughs> they know it. They can say that part of the movie. You know why? Every year at Christmas, that one and the one with the little boy with the BB gun and the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where it's a jingle all the way, they all come on, right? And they roll through all of the time, and you can't turn on the TV without seeing it, can you? Right? You want the Red Riser Daisy BB gun with the compass in the stock, you know? This is what this was like in Israel. You would see it every year, and you'd see it and see it and see it and see it so that when the reality came, you would recognize it. On the 14th of Nisan, this would be very early in the Hebrew year. For us, it would be around March or April. And for them, this would become the first month of the year. They would celebrate Passover. They call it Pasach. This would be the time where they were covered in blood and death would pass over their whole household. Kind of a salvation experience. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, they were called sons of God at this time. Then they would move from Passover to the Feast of of unleavened bread. This would be the time where the father would take the menorah and he would take all of the children. The father always led it and they would crawl around the house on their hands and knees and mama would have sprinkled some leaven here and there so that by the light of God's spirit and his word they could find leaven and get rid of it. Throw it out of the house. This is the time period we're all supposed to enter into when we become born again. The time period where we're searching our house, looking for anything that doesn't belong, throwing it out. The Father is leading you by the light of the Word and the Spirit and the family, the community, the churches around you doing the same thing. When they found it, they would take it in a bag outside and burn it. The next feast had to do with the harvest because nobody gets saved for the purpose of being saved. That would make you the object of your own faith. That would make everything about you. You get saved, you get delivered so that you can go work for God. I preached about this Wednesday. You are saved so that you can go do something for God. So the next feast was having been saved at Pesach, having been cleaned or sanctified at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we moved to the Feast of First Fruits. This was when you went out into the field and you said, this is the example right here. This sheaf of barley is perfect. It's as good as it gets. It was the first to rise out of the ground. And so it gets a special red sash tied around it, and we wave it before the Lord because in another 50 days, we're going to go get the rest of the harvest. You learned immediately that your life 
was about the harvest. And of course, Jesus was raised on the day of first fruits from out of the ground as an example to all mankind. This is what the right life looks like. This is what we're after. There's a time period between now and Pentecost when you're supposed to be gathering these people. Are you following me? Israel did this every year. Of course, we moved on from there to Pentecost, which is a <coughs> Greek word. They call it Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. This is when the law was given to them from Sinai. It is also when the Holy Ghost was poured out upon the church. It's what preachers were told to wait in Jerusalem till you receive. Otherwise, you will go out and be Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad y'all laughed. That was just a little joke. <laughs> kind of, sort of, but not really. <laughs> when we moved on from that harvest, the great harvest that would come by God's Spirit, there was a long delay. The long delay would come in the seventh month. We would move from the back of the second month all the way to the seventh month. And what you would hear is a piercing trumpet at Rosh Hashanah. You would hear the trumpet sound... And that would tell all Israel, get ready, because there is a day soon, 10 days from now, called Yom Kippur. The trumpets would sound telling the people, 10 days, get ready, because at Yom Kippur, the nation will be atoned for in one day. After Yom Kippur would come the last feast, the one that commemorated all of the others. The people of God would go put on tabernacles again, Little lean-tos if you're from Louisiana like me. Little temporary shelters. And they would commemorate the time that they followed God in temporary dwellings, looking for His cloud during the day and His fire by night, because now they had come into a permanent place with Him. This was the rehearsal schedule, friends. Isaiah 11 gave us a goal. When we've completed all of those feasts, this is what the earth will look like. People in Christianity call this the millennial reign. Before we get to the millennial reign, though, there are other things that had to be done. Turn to Isaiah 12. There. Yeah, I was hoping y'all would stay in Isaiah 11 and make it a short trip to Isaiah 12. Rosh Hashanah was the Feast of Trumpets. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. Rosh Hashanah occurs on the first of the month. The Day of Atonement on the 10th of the month and tabernacles for an entire week from the 15th to 21st. It's coming up in Israel's calendar, which is why I was thinking about it. Are you in Isaiah 12? Yes. 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 You all able to string together several subjects? Yes. yes. We don't need to dumb it down, right? No. Yes. You're all smarter than me. That'll make this easy. All right. On that seventh feast, they like to read a certain scripture. It came from Isaiah 12. In that day, you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. What a good feeling. The rehearsal of the feast schedule taught them something. In and of themselves, they could never earn righteousness. If they were not covered with the blood, they were covered with death. If they didn't search their house for leaven, then their house was overrun with leaven. If they didn't work in the harvest, then they were not useful in any way to the kingdom. And if they didn't get ready at the trumpet, then they could not be atoned for. And if they were not atoned for, they would never come into that permanent place with God. But having done all of those things, they could look back on them and say, You were angry with me, but now you have comforted me. Anybody ever live with their parents when you were little and you knew dad was mad? 
and you waited for his countenance to change. <laughs> you know? And no worse feeling than your mother not punish you, but say, you just wait till your father gets home. Like you're looking out the window. One time, I probably already told you all this at my daddy's funeral. I don't think I did. One time, I had done something really terrible. I had called my seventh grade PE coach an ugly name and given him a, a certain hand gesture that Christians don't make. And uh, I was lost. Yeah. And uh, they told my parents, right? So I heard the car pulled in, knowing, this is like Rosh Hashanah, right? <laughs> knowing an announcement coming. I ran to my bedside. I fell upon my knees in the most insincere prayer life you've ever seen. And I began praying that I did not die. <laughs> Gary was a big man when I was still a little boy. As he came up the stairs and I could hear him, you know, at quite a pace, he said, that's not going to help you this time. <laughs> we need to know that our God is not a pushover. He knows the difference between sincere devotion that shows up in your daily deeds and an insincere prayer life. Israel got to rehearse these things all of the time. Now Isaiah 12. In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord, although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. Oh, happy day. And you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. It spoke of a pattern where anger was no longer a part of our relationship. Comfort had become the thing that God had provided for us, which made Him our Savior. We were in His wrath. But then we found ourselves in His favor because He brought us there. And now He was our Savior. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is at my strength, is my strength. This is uh, Adonai Yahweh. This is like saying the all-sufficient, amazing, self-existent God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Every time they went into God's presence, every single time they thought of it, it's like receiving life-giving water. I don't know if you've ever really been thirsty. In this country, we often don't get really thirsty. But I've taken many of you to places where the children will drink. I showed you a bucket, a, a level three biohazard, and somebody's drinking water out of it. A ditch with tires and motor oil and a child drinking out of it because they are thirsty. If you are a desert people, if you live anywhere where water is scarce, water is precious. I went this weekend to gather with my family. It's been one month since my father died and I thought it would be a good idea to spend some time with my mother and my sister. And so we went somewhere that he had enjoyed. It was Lake Conroe. And we went to the same house that we had gone to last September when he was still living. You know that the water was eight feet off of its average? Wow. When you walked out to the end of the deck where you might get in a boat to go skiing or on a jet ski to, uh, I don't know what we do on jet skis, have fun. You look straight down and where the lift stopped, there was eight feet below it in the water. No way to even get it in the water. In fact, the water in the inlet where we were had about shin deep water in it. I don't know where Judah is, but he, uh, there he is. He was trudging around in it. 
and there were fish about this big, and they were stuffed in it. It's a really sad thing to see something that's lived a long time, probably the master of its own little area, starving for oxygen. How many of you even knew Texas was in a drought? Mm -hmm. And did you have to learn because of the news? Or did you feel it in some way? Mm -hmm. See, we have so insulated ourselves from the rest of the world in any way, we don't even know there's a drought unless somebody tells us there's a drought. But can you know that there's areas of the world that if there's a drought, you're the first to know it? Israel, water is precious. Very precious. They catch all of their rainwater. My 70-year-old tour guide, when I was there in the early 90s, cried when he saw snow melting on Mount Hermon because he knew he was drinking water for his people in Jerusalem. There's a relationship to water that's hard for us to understand. Water is life. And if you don't have it, your life's going to go away. Being in the Lord's presence to an Israeli was like drawing water out of a well. It was something that was causing you to live, something that was causing you to be sustained. Are you tracking with me this morning? Okay, let's move on then to our point. Praise God for everybody <laughs> saying amen to that. <laughs> Turn with me to Jeremiah 2. You'll move to the right in your Bibles. Isaiah 12, what I just read to you was a song. It was a song in Hebrew that was sung at the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. When they drew water from the wells of salvation, they went out and did something with it at the Feast of Sukkot. They went out and poured it into 12 earthen vessels. They drew water from the wells of salvation in a big golden vessel. The golden vessel represented the divine presence of God. And then they showed the divine presence of God every year for 1,600 years Right up to Jesus' day, the divine presence of God would tip over and pour itself out into 12 earthen vessels. Because they knew that in the Messianic age, when Messiah comes, there will be a way for us to participate with God. We won't just be called His children, we'll act like His children. We won't just know His word, it will literally be written upon our hearts we will be one with him and he will be one with us because the cry of Israel was that they would be hod. Hod in Hebrew is two things that are separate and yet somehow one. Kind of like a marriage. They saw themselves as married to God. Are you in Jeremiah 2? Yes. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land, not through a land not sown. Think about this. You're a brand new brother. <coughs> Who in here has been married less than five years? Raise your hand. Wow, there's a bunch of you. Anybody married less than a year? Less than two. All right, Clementina. We're going to use you as an example then. <laughs> All of a sudden, Justice walks in, and what a great name that is. You can follow a man named Justice. Yes. Justice walks in and says, Clementina, I know that you have lived in the UK. I know that we're both from Ghana, but where I think the Lord has told us to go is Siberia. 
<laughs> I've been married less than two years. That'd be a hard word for Clementina? You be honest, would be a hard word for you. Yes. Jen, would that have been a hard word for you? Uh -huh. She said, the Lord told you what? <laughs> you don't have to tell me. Uh -huh. Ashley, she wouldn't do that. She'd thank it, but she wouldn't do that. <laughs> As a young bride, Israel would follow the Lord where? Through the desert, a place with no water. This was utter, total dependence upon the Lord. Can you imagine a couple million people storming around the desert and you're looking around and God says, hey, go hit that rock. And then water comes out of it. This, this is so supernatural that it would cause you to know that you were completely not self-sufficient. The relationship of Israel to the Father was one that was characterized by total dependency, a reckless abandonment of your survival instinct. What is your relationship with the Lord characterized by? Is it a reckless abandonment of, of yourself? Is it a total dependency on the Lord? Or have we simply said, Lord, we know that you do pretty good things and I like pretty good things, so we'll form a partnership and you bless what I did? Listen to what else Jeremiah says to him. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? Something happened. They didn't just wake up one day and say, Lord, Lord, we don't want to walk with you anymore. Instead, stand up the living. Instead, while they once walked so close, see, I stepped you step. See? And they learned to do this. Eventually, this begins to happen. And they're going different directions. He said, What happened? What happened in our relationship, Olivia? <laughs> you strayed so far from me. Don't we find this tendency in our walk? That in the very beginning, we're like, Lord, if you get me out of this jam, <laughs> I'll do anything for you. You know, I lost my job and blah, blah, blah. But look, if you just deliver me, I, I'll do anything for you. And man, you are Johnny on the spot at first. And then, slowly, the separation occurs. Now, you never say it's separation, right? Because God knows your heart. He knows how much you love him. Even while your actions are showing you're walking the other way, right? Doing what you like, refusing what you dislike. Disobedience, right? But we never call it that because after all, it's not like those other people. I'm not doing what they do. Yeah, but that's not God's standard, is it? God's standard is, are you doing what he told you to do? Are you following me? You want me to stop preaching now? No. Oh, okay, well, that's good. I wasn't going to stop anyway, but I thought I'd ask just to see what you wanted. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me that they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves? Friends, we have one worth to God. Just one. When we're obedient to Him, He uses us to accomplish His will. When we are disobedient to Him, when we do what we want to do, we have become worthless. Actually, it can be a little worse than worthless if you think about it. 
Proverbs 25, 26 says, Like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. The only thing worse than not having water is running over to something that you think is water, excited, hope, at an all-time high, only to find out it's gritty, muddy, nasty, can't be drunk. When we say we follow the Lord, but we don't do what He says, that's not a good thing. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. God brought them through a land where nobody traveled and nobody lived just to show them, be dependent upon me. But somewhere along the way, slowly they began to veer. And he said, Why did, what happened? What did I do that upset you? What did he call her his bride? He gets so far along this path that he doesn't just say, what did I do to upset you? He said, you don't even seem to notice I'm gone. Remember the question I asked you earlier? How many services have we sat in that ran so efficiently? Were so entertaining? They were so filled with us. We didn't even notice it was not filled with God. Where is our utter dependency upon the moving of His Spirit? Most of the time we've engineered it out. Most of the time we have explained it away. There's a whole segment of Christianity that says God simply doesn't do those things anymore. Well, you're talking about stick your hand and head in the sand. I went and told the pastor that I love very much. God very much does these things today. He did it to me yesterday. He encouraged me to stay in the denomination that I was in because it's where all the resources were. Is this really what we need? Resources? Or do we need an utter dependency upon the Lord? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. Isn't this really the story of our lives? When we're in great need, we're very close to the Lord. As He does great things for us. If you open my first Bible, and I don't have it. I've had a few Bibles stolen. When you open it, it was a prayer list. It was 1993, and Jennifer and I we're praying for some things. You want to hear how big our faith was? My underwear had just been stolen in a laundromat. This was underwear. Maybe they needed to make a sale for a ship. I don't know. What but somebody had just stolen my underwear in the laundromat. So our prayer, number one, was that we would have a place with an extra bedroom so somebody could stay with us. That was number one. Number two... Was it needed washer and dryer connections? <laughs> Number three was a job. I'm just being honest. Where people thought I was good at what I did. At 18 years old, that was very important. I know that's not important to any of you, but it was important to me. Some of the others I'll tell you about some other time. But God has done everything that we asked for. You would think that that would be okay, Lord. You've proven yourself once and for all. You never had to prove it, but you did. But what do we do? We just come up with a new Christmas list. And say, put something nice on that list for yourself there, God. <laughs> the problem with Israel was that when God had accomplished for them everything that he said he was going to, they didn't continue to need him. So let me ask you, if we have 
air conditioning and refrigerated food and a gold card and a bank account. Why are the poor rich in faith again? That's right, because they're poor. They have to trust him. Maybe we have engineered out of our lives, our church services, out of everything, any need to trust the Lord. And when some crazy man comes and speaks to you, usually a missionary once a year or however often it is in your little circle, it's easy to dismiss him because, I mean, after all, he's one of those. <coughs> but isn't that what a Christian is supposed to look like? Somebody who is utterly dependent on the Lord, who risks it all for the Lord every day. Skip down to verse 11. Has any nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged, what's that pronoun there? There. Their, a personal, possessive pronoun. Their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. The people exchanged their glory, and glory there is a euphemism for the Lord. They've exchanged the Lord with whom they were in covenant with, like their husband, for worthless things. We all say, no way, we wouldn't do that. But if we're not walking with him as closely as we were the day we were born again, and as much need with him as the day we were born again, then the things that have come into our life that have allowed that separation are the worthless things that we've taken instead of him. Let's just be honest. How many people in here would be benefit with a week fast from TV? Yeah, we all know this, right? When's the last time you fasted for a week from TV? <laughs> then the next question is, why do you have one? If you benefit for a week, then why do we why do we have them? Well, I'll be the first to tell you I like Fox News, so I'll say it's to, to be informed, right? But how many times did I sit and watch Fox News instead of he said Robin Big, bad boy. <laughs> How many times did I sit and watch that when I should have been seeking the Lord for His name? You see how these things creep in suddenly? And before long, your life's filled with them. I, I got a phone the other day because I dropped one at Matthew's house. I won't tell you where, but it was uh, full of porcelain and water. And uh, it, it destroyed the phone. So, so they sent me another phone. This one is a gaming console as well. I didn't know that when it came. Because, you know, we need one more place to be able to play video games, don't we? It's like a community development plan where we say, you know, what we're really short of is more Starbucks. <laughs> we have so filled our lives with things, we have left no room for God. So listen to what he says to his people. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. That's first sin. And have dug their own cisterns. Cisterns that cannot hold water. That's an interesting thing because to dig a cistern, you usually had to go carve something out of a rock face. Cisterns are all over Israel. They have openings two to three feet wide that you can cover with a rock. And then it's a, it's a giant bowl inside. So rainwater and all kinds of things can come uh, in through that. We want to catch what we can get on our own, Lord, rather than trust that you will bring for us what we need when we need it. That doesn't describe us at all, does it? They have dug their own cisterns. You know, to dig a cistern in your heart, you had to pry something out of it. 
If your heart was already filled with the entertainment of the Lord, the provision of the Lord, the fullness of the Lord, if your heart was already full of the Lord, how did we make so much room for all of these other things? We dug something out. And he says it's a broken cistern. It will never hold water. You don't realize you've separated yourself from the source and you filled yourself with things that cannot nourish you. One man called it spiritual junk food. And who wouldn't rather eat Twinkies? But let's be honest, if your life and diet is defined by Twinkies, you're not going to like the results, are you? What an important word for the church. But you know, I just want to tell you, I look out there and I see new faces and Sometimes our chairs get full. I know all I have to do is preach like this, and the chairs will get thin again. We joke all of the time. We say we can pastor all of Houston 100 people at a time. We'll just keep having you come through. Mm -hmm. If what I wanted to do was build a big church, all I'd have to do is tell you you're wonderful just the way you are. And that all God really wants for you is for you to be happy. That's all we would have to do, and people flock to it. They flock to it because it's what we really want, is just to be happy and God to be a part of that. The real relationship with the Lord is defined by total, utter dependency on Him. He said that they had dug cisterns, cisterns that would not hold water, their own cisterns. Turn with me to Jeremiah 17. Tell me when you're there. Okay, now that you're in Jeremiah 17, I want to talk to you about Genesis 37 and Jeremiah 38. So you keep where you're at in Jeremiah 17, and I'm going to talk to you about Genesis 37 and Jeremiah 38. In Genesis 37, there's a cistern. See, when people have cisterns that are broken and they don't work, and you show up full of the Lord, full of excitement, full of His power, they don't like you. And they don't like you because you are a reminder of what their life should look like. And so what they try to do is wrap you in their system. See, Joseph was a dreamer who had been filled with beautiful power from God. Anointed with a coat of many colors. Given dreams about his future and he shared those things. And his brothers didn't like it. So they found a dry cistern, one that would not hold water. And they threw him into it. This is what the religious world tries to do when they swallow up men and women who dare to be dependent upon the Lord. Amen. J.J., you don't really have to be quite that dependent upon the Lord. Look, as a part of our organization, you'd be better taken care of than that. After all, we can use your anointing and your gifting because that's what we're built on is using our own arm. It's a cistern that swallows up life. In Jeremiah 38... Jeremiah, prophet to the nation. You remember where they threw him? A cistern that had no water in it. If the cistern had water in it, they would have swam out. The presence of the Lord will always carry you where you should go. It's precisely because the cisterns were empty that they felt like prisons. Friends, how many years and how many times do people know better than to sit in the weak, dead religion that they're in, the, the religion that has a form of godliness, but denies its power. How many times do we know better 
but we're convinced God can use us here. And you look back on years of your life and what you find out is it was a prison all of the time. We've made a ministry out of doing nothing other than taking misdirected young men and women who have thought they were the mercenary to these places and let them know it's been chewing up people for 200 years. You get right with God and let them get right with God themselves. We are nothing without the presence of God, friends. Nothing. No matter how dignified, no matter how fat the bank account, no matter how nice the suit or the beautiful building, we are nothing without the presence of God. And when you look carefully, you find that the way of things is all of these movements start off walking with the Lord and ever so gently begin to move away from the difficult, away from the leading of God's Spirit, and they begin leading themselves. You ever read Jude? Yes. These men who do not have the Spirit but follow mere natural instincts are the men who divide you. It's almost like it wasn't written in our Bibles. Of course, I spent years in a denominational church and didn't even know that was in the Bible. Are you in Jeremiah 17? That's yes. where we yes. are. Aren't you glad we're getting back on point? Look at 17.5. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. But Lord, isn't it possible to do both? Can't I trust in my own arm and also trust in you, you know, when it's too big for me or I need you? No, trusting in your arm always turns you away from the Lord. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You're either radically dependent upon Him or you're radically dependent upon yourself. He's either Lord of all of you or He's Lord of none of you. That's why Keith Rain wrote that in the song. If you'll only come to me on Sundays and Wednesdays, don't bother coming at all. Something Jesus would have no problem saying, but Keith's closest friends and family tried to talk him out of saying because it seems so harsh. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on his flesh for strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in parched places of the desert, in salt land where no one lives. This is what his life will be like spiritually, but I assure you if he's an American, he will fill it with playgrounds, Coffee houses, nice suits, and pretty people with pictures. I promise. Amos talked about a famine that would come upon the land. And it would not be a famine of food or drink. He said it would be a famine of hearing my voice. We have a self-inflicted famine. We haven't even taken the time to seek his voice. And many have declared already that he doesn't speak anymore. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by a stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought. And it never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all else. And beyond cure, who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. That's an interesting scripture for those of us that have stood and claimed the Lord knows my heart, huh? He does, do you? 
what is the fruit that your heart is bearing? It's an easy thing to say the Lord knows my heart. It's a more difficult thing to look back at the last few years of your life and say, could it be discerned from my actions? Then be careful that your statement is not just excusing yourself from the searing conviction of the Holy Ghost, because it might be what saves you. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his belief system. To reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Like a partridge that hatches eggs, it did not lay as the man who gains riches by unjust means. When his life is half gone, they will desert him. And in the end, he will prove to be a, a glorious throne exalted from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written where? Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. This is a really interesting scripture. If we dig our own systems, build our own programs, if we fill ourselves with food that will not nourish us, if we fill our lives with self-sufficiency, it puts us to shame. It will not sustain us. It keeps us in a dry and parched land. And what does the Lord do with your name? He writes it in the dust. Turn with me to John. There. In the book of John, turn with me to the fourth chapter. When we sit in the fourth chapter, I would like to tell you something. We're cursed when we depend upon ourselves. There is no spiritual nourishment in it, and our hearts become increasingly deceitful. And the problem with being deceived is that you don't know you're deceived. It's like arguing with a drunk man about whether or not he's drunk. So the Lord puts you in situations where your name is written in the dust. And he wrote it there. And it is a wake-up call. We will get to that in a minute. Has anybody in here felt like a broken vessel? You don't have to raise your hands, but I do appreciate that. Has anybody in here realized that at some point, you began trying to provide for yourself? You began trying to lead yourself. You began trying to direct yourself, all in the name of the Lord. And now when you look back at it, it looks more like a broken cistern. Yes. Because the 31st Psalm is all about a man named David who cried out and said, I'm a broken vessel. And then I think it says broken pot shard before you. And the 18th chapter of Jeremiah is all about God visiting a potter's house. And the pottery is marred in the potter's hand. God said, don't worry, Jeremiah, watch what he does. And he takes that very same lump of clay and he reworks it into something that he can work with. The hope, friends, is that we realize that we've strayed. The hope is that we have seen the parched land. And we say, Lord, I want to be a vessel fit for your use. One that is fed by your spring, not one that is defined by my own 
sister. And then he begins to remake us into that. Are y'all in John 4? Yes. yes. <laughs> Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We have a woman who is literally trying to fill her life with water from a well. But Jesus is speaking to her about a more spiritual condition. That no matter how much water she gets and gets for herself, because she is the object of her own faith, because her life is ultimately about herself, it will never satisfy her. Where did Jesus know this from? We knew it from the book of Jeremiah. It would never satisfy her. And when he says, if you knew who I was in the gift of God, you would ask me and I would give you living water. This was a way of saying, you need a different source, sweetheart. And it's not this well. You're looking in the wrong place for what will make you happy. And of course... That doesn't get it done. What does she bring up next? You can skip that. Do we worship on this mountain or that mountain? Yeah. This is everybody's theological argument when faced with the confrontation of the truth. There is only dependency upon Him or dependency upon ourselves. But we bring our best theological arguments into the arena. We say things like, if grace is really grace. We say things like, yeah, but... Didn't all that pass away? We make up for ourselves doctrines that make us feel better about our self-dependent lives. This is what she did. How did he answer her? He said, believe me, woman. <laughs> and like they say in Louisiana where I'm from, you can believe that. <laughs> believe me, woman, a time is coming. People will neither worship on this mountain or that mountain. It's not an issue. It's about your great need. It's about what the Lord's looking for. But people will worship Him in spirit and truth. He's looking for those, Amen. seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. All theological treaties laid aside, and I promise I'll sit with any of you and do it as long as you want. I love that stuff. There's no life in it, but I love it. <laughs> At the end of the day, your life is either being directed by God's spirit or it's being directed by your spirit. The 8th chapter of Romans tells us that the definition for a son of God is one who is led by God's Spirit. This woman then gets to the heart of the issue, and it's not the theological issue. It's that she is living with a man that she's not married to, and that it's her fifth attempt at it. Sin always stands in the way of seeing ourselves right. It always stands in the way of us receiving from God. It's not a problem for him, by the way. He can wipe it away. It's a problem for us. Who am I to be talking to the Lord? I've got this. It heaps condemnation on us. It brings guilt and shame 
that prevents you from even wanting to go into the presence of God. So you find the Lord saying things like this through Isaiah. Come, let's reason. Oh, your sin is like scarlet. I'll deal with that. I just want you to be devoted to me. This woman was so impressed, she went and told everybody in the village, this man told me everything I ever did. Did he actually tell her everything she ever did? No, but she felt like it because he told her about the things that she didn't tell her she did. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing thing? Yeah. She witnessed everybody and they came to listen to Jesus. They said, we no longer believe because of your testimony. We believe because we experienced it ourselves. Now John 4 is right there. You can tell me if I'm lying. We believe it because we have now seen for ourselves. I want to ask you, is your Christian walk based on someone else's testimony? Or because you've experienced it yourself? Well, I listened to so-and-so and he preached really good and I agreed with him. That's not salvation. Salvation is when you have begun to walk with the Lord like a young bride. And wherever he goes, you'll follow. All of your protection, all of your provision, all that you are is found in him. That's a particularly difficult thing to, to uh, deal with when you already have accepted the fact that, oh, I've been serving the Lord many years, despite there's no evidence in it. Despite there's no fruit on the tree. Despite the fact that it is mostly produced yuckiness. I've been serving the Lord many years. That situation is addressed in John 7. Please turn with me there. You remember where we started? How many feasts were there in Israel? Seven. And in the seventh month, the seventh feast was completed. And the seventh feast was called Sukkot. And the seventh feast they sang from Isaiah. They sang about drawing water from the wells of salvation. They sang about the time when the Messianic age would be here. Sukkot was several days. I told you it was longer than a week. They rehearsed it for 1,600 years. And they took a golden vessel. Remember this? A divine presence. And they poured out of it into 12 earthen vessels. The living water of God. Now, if you're a Jew standing there in the first century, what are the 12 earthen vessels? 12 tribes. And truthfully, that is correct. This side of the cross, and after 2,000 years after the Pentecost, you might see it's 12 something else. Look at 37. On the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Do you know what is going on in the background? They have a golden vessel. And they're pouring it into 12 earthen vessels. The presence of God being poured out into the tribes of Israel. And Jesus is standing there announcing to them. As one of them. What you need. Is that kind of dependency. On me. And why didn't they like it? Well, it would require them to leave everything that was security. Many of them worked in the temple service. It would require them to have a ra radical abandonment of their way of life and follow somebody that was obscure and controversial. If Jesus asked you 
to wear an electric chair around your neck, would you do it as easily as you do a cross? Because it was the same in the first century. He said, if any man thirsts, let him come and drink of me. By this he meant the Spirit, John says. So a little story that is next. And you might have a note. The note says something along the lines of, this does not appear in many of the earliest manuscripts. What a helpful note, right? Friends, if you can't tell by the spirit it belongs in your Bible, you might not be as connected with the head as you think you are. Watch how beautifully this flows. You ready? Then each one went to his own home. But Jesus, this is verse 1 of 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this as a question. This Using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. There are a lot of reasons that this is a trap. One of them is that Leviticus 20, verse 10, says bring the man and the woman. How did they catch her in the act of adultery but couldn't bring the man? The other is, if he lets her go, he'll seem as if he's not upholding the law. If he kills her, he'll seem cruel. Trap. Friends, Jesus never be, needs to be defended, nor Christianity defended from the Bible. We live in a day where people take the harsher statements of Jesus and they try to explain them away. It doesn't need to happen. What we need to do is look and see what we filled our life with and what the Spirit is trying to cut out of it. Circumcise your hearts and ears. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with His finger. If He's writing on the ground with His finger, what's He writing in? Dust. dust. Whose names would be written in the dust? Anyone who forsook the spring of living water that is God and dug their own cistern. What was written in the dust? The names of anyone who had forsaken God to follow their own way. But don't we do this all of the time in religion? Are they concerned at all with life here? Are they concerned with seeing freedom to the captive? Widows fed? Orphans taken care of? They're concerned with being right. What do most of our religious discussions revolve around? And so Jesus bends down and begins to write. And the difference between us and them and why so many sermons have been preached about this going, I wonder what he wrote in the dirt, is they have the book of Jeremiah memorized. And we don't. So as soon as he began to write, they knew exactly what he was saying. And they had just seen him at the feast called himself the spring of living water. Which all men should come and drink. Who is the one person there that knew they were guilty before this started? Her. What a great place to be. When the Lord does not have to prove you guilty by writing your name in the dust in a way that the whole world sees it. You already know you're guilty. They find mercy first. Those men left feeling guilty. This woman did not. He said, any of you without sin, throw the first stone at her. 
they left from the oldest to the youngest, from those who had memorized Jeremiah first to the ones who had more recently learned it because they knew they were every bit as guilty as she ever was. He says, woman, has no one condemned you? Colossians 1.22 says, you now stand free from accusation, holy in his sight, without blemish. The 12th chapter of Revelation says the accuser of the brethren who accuses them day and night has been cast down. See, in its essence, what our Lord has done for all of us, as he said, unless you have been listening to my voice and doing only what I tell you, you're all broken cisterns and you've forsaken me. You're all written in the dust. You're of the earth. And I'm trying to teach you to follow a voice from heaven. So where are they that have condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. But what did he tell her to do? Same thing that he told the woman at the well in a manner of speaking. Same thing that Jeremiah said. You're going to have to be made into something new. Go leave your life of sin. In her life, you might think that was adultery. I assure you it was not depending upon herself rather than the Lord that just led her to adultery she left that day with a new life and a new understanding they just left guilty my goal here in preaching all of this today is not to make anybody feel bad I love you I told you I'm proud of many of you my goal here today is led by the Lord is to get us to take a look at what we might not so readily see about ourselves because we compare ourselves with others instead of with the Lord. Those men all thought that they were completely justified because they knew what the law said. They weren't doing what it said, but they knew what it said, so they thought they were justified. That's so radically different than any church people you know, isn't it? Mm -hmm. They all thought that they were justified that day because they were not a common whore like her. Of course, were they? They were making their money off of God's name. But they were not doing what God called them to do. Are those two things really that different? Using God-given attributes and callings? For something God never called you to do? I meet that every day. Among prim and proper people. Every day. At the end of the day, there's one test. Either he is our source for everything, or he's just a little tributary that you've asked to flow alongside you. The bumper sticker was right. God is my co-pilot. That is a great summary of American Christianity. At least in India, they're honest. They say he's one of my many. We don't say that. We just act like it. Church, I'd like to call you back to a radical dependency upon him. Amen. I'd like to call you to a place where you felt like none of his word was optional. If he said something like, thirst for the gifts, desire the gifts, that you actually did. Instead of going, I'm not sure they're for today. I would like you to actually engage the text and not listen to what someone else said about it. <coughs> answer the question, what do you say about it? Throw away your commentaries for a year. Quit Googling verses for a year. You sit down with the Almighty God and say, please show me what does this mean. This is the beginning of wisdom. But it's a hard thing to do because we filled our minds and thoughts 
with everything else, and it insulates us from the only thing that will feed us. The right thing to do in a service like this is to give an altar call. And this is what we expect. It's like leaving a doctor's office and getting a prescription, right? If he's not wearing a white coat and doesn't give you a pill that makes you feel better, then what do you do? I don't see not one time in all of the scripture that Jesus or any of the apostles ever said to the people, come forward with every head bowed. Raise your hands so you can be saved. You do see the people hear Peter in the second chapter of Acts and go, what must we do to be saved? Not say, not believe, what must we do to be saved? I'm going to leave you with the joy of knowing you can be remained. No matter where you are in life, God is just like that potter, and he can remake your entire life. I'm going to leave you with the joy of knowing there is an inexhaustible source to drink from. He will put himself in you in a way that wells up so that you are never without. I'm going to leave you with the burdensome knowledge that you can have none of that if you insist on doing it yourself your own way. And that it might be hard for you to see that you do that because your heart is deceptive. What shows us that we do it, what shows this pastor that I do that personally is when I'm engaging his word and it begins to divide my thought from the motives of my constant use with the word teaches me to distinguish good from evil, as Hebrew says. You would think that would be the most basic, easy thing in the world to do. And yet it's been man's occupation from the beginning to muddy that water. Because we say we're the Lord's, and then we don't act like it. So you're given a charge this week. We're going to stand our feet for your charge. charge is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not pillow puff prophets and padded doctrines. Work out your being saved by the Lord. Beginning with a reverential fear of your every action. Take the time to hear his voice. Because the other side of Romans 8 is that his spirit will bear with your spirit a testimony that you are the son of God. See, my hope is that nobody will have to tell you that you're a son of God. My hope is that you won't need some ridiculous doctrine to convince you that you're a son of God. My hope is that having tasted of that source and feeling him flow through you. You could never be convinced that you weren't because you're dependent upon him every moment. You tell me what eternal security is. I would say be eternally attached to him and then it's not an issue. We'll pray together. Then we're going to laugh, have a good time, hug each other, greet each other, probably go eat lunch with each other.
and this will become one service of many other services that we've done. We'll throw it on the internet with all of the others. And that's all it'll ever be <coughs> unless Monday morning you wake up with this on your mind. And tonight you go to bed with this on your mind. But I'm convinced if you do those things, then we find ourselves standing in the midst of superstars. Jesus took 12 who took it seriously. And they changed every facet of 